Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends. It's Friday, January 29. Time for this week's roundtable. Well, Joe Biden's been president for only a week, but we've seen what a difference a week can make. The White House announces a message for the day, and the president actually sticks to it. White House briefings have resumed and actually start on time. The new president tweeted only 42 times in his first six days in office and didn't insult anybody. Meanwhile, he signed over three dozen executive orders on everything from climate change to minimum wage to COVID-19 to protection for the dreamers. So how long will the first flurry of activity last and will it result in passage of any meaningful agenda, legislative agenda, through the Congress? Joining us today to assess Biden's first week in office, Sabrina Siddiqui, the new White House correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Hello, Sabrina. Congratulations. Thank you. Hello, hello. Hunter Walker, White House correspondent, continuing for Yahoo News. Hi, Hi, Hunter. Hey, good morning. And Jeff Dufer, editor-in-chief of National Journal. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Bill. So uh, what a difference a week can make, Sabrina, right? A night and day almost. (laughs) It's uh, certainly a striking contrast to the kind of chaos that everyone got accustomed to over the last four years. And to your point, uh, if there's a theme for the day, the White House has actually stuck with it. Uh, there's no pretend infrastructure week, at least not yet. Um, but I think uh, that's a very niche joke, but I think the people who listen to your podcast will get it. Um, I, you know, I think obviously the President Biden has uh, signed a flurry of executive orders. It's fairly normal, of course, for an incoming president to do so. And a lot of his actions have focused on reversing Trump-era policy, for example, uh, revoking President Trump, former President Trump's uh, travel ban on several Muslim-majority countries, uh, re-engaging the U.S. in the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, we've seen him take other actions on the environment, uh, also reinstating an Obama-era order that uh, would eventually phase out the, f- the federal use of private prisons. So a lot of progressive priorities out the gate And then, of course, a much more robust uh, intent to tackle the coronavirus pandemic and accelerate Mm -hmm. the pace of vaccine distribution. So I think we're really getting a a preview of more that is to come. And and many a lot of what President Biden really campaigned on, not just the executive action and the, um, I think, putting putting science and health expertise first in the COVID response, uh, but also a return to normalcy, a return to steady leadership and putting more experienced people back in the U.S. government. Yeah. Hunter, how's it changed for you on a day-to-day basis just covering the White House? (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Where, where do you start? <laughs> first off, it's crazy that it's 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 been a week. I mean, what what is time anymore? Um, right. I I have not, due to the fact that the Biden White House is kind of um, rich moved to a stricter COVID rotation. I've not actually gone in physically yet, but, you know, in the final weeks of the Trump administration, I'd basically defaulted to a routine um, that I had for a bit this summer, which is um, basically by my uh, procedure for covering civil unrest, um, which is wild <laughs> to think I've like developed a plan for that. Um, so, so, you know, in the days after the inauguration, I was able to ramp down from that. Um, I think Sabrina's right that, you know, we're certainly seeing a much more traditional um, approach to the White House from the Biden team. And I think we're also kind of seeing, you know, a lot of reporters kind of almost instantly revert back into um, old school political coverage. And what I mean is like the quote unquote scandals of the early Biden administration have, as it were, have been, you know, um, the president wears a Rolex. Um, the president. <laughs> the president has taken weekends off. Um, the president has issued executive actions such that he he earned a stern reprimand from the New York Times editorial page. Um, so it's both refreshing and bizarre to see us return to that, as if like literally, what is it, three weeks ago, the story wasn't um, a violent coup attempt. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I do worry a bit that in people's um, eagerness to relax basically and move on um that we're not spending enough time kind of looking back at what happened with the capital um which was really an extraordinary uh, almost more than a terrorist attack on a, you know on mm -hmm. an american icon yeah well, jeff uh it's certainly uh, if you talk about change right uh you know things have changed when the most exciting part of Joe Biden's first week was he went to mass on Sunday morning and he stopped for bagels on the way home. Well, he's got to, he's got to look out for the Catholic vote and the Jewish vote. <laughs> he's, he's, he's got it all covered. But is there a message in this normalcy? Is it sort of, you know, sending a message out to the country, relax, things are kind of back to normal now? There, there is. I, I, I think it's refreshing to actually debate policy again, the, the, the environment, deficit spending, Title IX, what have you. I, I fully expect Democrats are going to overreach on some of these things, but that's fine. It's, it's, it's quaint even, like Hunter was saying about the level of scandal we're seeing. Um, it, it's been a pretty good rollout. There's, there's one thing I'm a little more, I, I guess, pessimistic on, which is that when you look at the first 100 days or, or even the first week like this and you, and you think about how a president would normally, a, a newly minted president would normally behave, we see how much the pandemic has really changed the nature of the presidency and hampered his ability to, to sell any sort of an agenda. Um, he, I was talking with George Condon, our White House correspondent, and, and we were musing over the fact that he's only the third president to ever deal with, the, with a pandemic. And Trump was the second. Mm -hmm. uh, Wilson was Wilson was the first 100 years ago. So what would a president in any other time be doing right now? He'd probably be touring a solar panel factory to plug his climate change plan. He'd be planning his early his first state dinner. He'd be having McConnell and Pelosi over for drinks, maybe to hash out a stimulus deal. 
He can't do any of that right now. He's, he's giving speeches in empty rooms and he's holding Zoom meetings and um, maybe, maybe addressing the press a couple times a week. But his toolbox is so limited compared to what a president would normally do in his first 100 days. Right. Uh, Sabrina, you mentioned some of the executive orders. Uh, there have been big ones and little ones, right? I mean, some, we're not really sure what they do, but major ones like back in the Paris Climate Accords, ending the Muslim ban, protecting the dreamers. There was one I found interesting where the president actually spent a day this week talking about something that most people have never talked about before, which is environmental justice. Here's the president when he signed that order. With this executive order, environmental justice will be at the center of all we do addressing the disproportionate health and environmental and economic impacts on communities of color, so-called fence line communities, especially those communities, brown, black, Native American, poor whites. Notice he mentioned even poor whites in that concept. Uh, this is a new sort of twist on the environmental movement, Sabrina. Absolutely, and it, what it really intends to do is to tackle what has really been generations of discrimination that puts refineries, landfills, factories, and factory farms that are in black, brown, and poor white communities as well um, at a greater risk from pollution. And that's what he means by environmental justice. He had said he would address it as a candidate, but it's a lot of, uh, I think, uh, it's, it's often rhetoric, but not something that you see followed through with policy. And so it's really interesting that um, he is trying to directly address those communities, disproportionately communities of color, but also white working class communities that are mired in pollution and health hazards. Um, you know, again, to your point, there's going to be a lot of follow through, I think, uh, in terms of the reporting on how much will actually change. But I think the he, one thing that President Biden did is create a, create a new White House Council on Environmental Justice and pledged that 40% of the benefits from federal investments in clean energy and clean water would go to communities that bear this disproportionate uh, risk of pollution. So, you know, I think that he had put a very uh, wide-ranging environmental agenda as a, as a centerpiece of his campaign. Um, and to your point, it's not just about rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, I think there will be a lot of pressure on the Biden administration to go further than the Obama administration did. And so that's what you saw with some of these initial, with at least this, this executive action around environmental justice. I think there will be much more that would probably need to be done through legislation. Uh, certainly Biden has not signed on to the Green New Deal. Um, he had not em embraced it as a candidate. But you are starting to see him take some action that I think will at least be a, an important start for progressives who have wanted to see more from him on the issue of climate. Uh, yeah, it reminded me in the early days, people used to accuse the Sierra Club of doing a great job uh, in the Sierras, but that they never got below the 10,000 foot level, um, which is certainly n not the case and hasn't been the case for a long time. But this is a, an important new, I think, approach to the whole uh, issue of, uh, of conservation and the environment. But Hunter, isn't the rub that um, you can only go so far with executive orders and in the end you 
uh, they can be undone by another a future president, and you need legislation to really get things done. Exactly. You're going to you know, see it take years um, to restore some of these regulatory rollbacks um, President Trump did on the environmental level, for example. Um, and one thing that's really interesting is in this 50-50 um, Senate, um, you know, we really, I think for a long time, we got used to Mitch McConnell's majority and, and what what it was like to govern, you know, for Democrats to try to navigate that. Um, they're now going to be going returning to this structure that's kind of still getting hashed out uh, that we haven't seen since really 2001. Um, and I think it will be interesting to see how Biden and Chuck Schumer, you know, navigate the narrowest of edges um, against Mitch McConnell, someone who's always been very aggressive at, you know, using a, a majority or, or um, even not <laughs> to, yeah, to right. you know, to, to get his get his ends done there. Um, I, I've been talking to sort of the burgeoning progressive think tank space that's been kind of coming together um, in the past four or so years, um, notably New Consensus, which is kind of made by a lot of veterans of um, Justice Democrats, the group that, um, you know, helped bring us the squad. Um, and they have this whole set of memos they've written kind of urging Biden to um, take a very aggressive tack and kind of use the Federal Reserve to, to you know, fund initiatives very directly through loans. Um, you know, that's one that's one idea. But I think generally a dynamic we're going to see going forward is, you know, we're going to confront the limits of what Biden can do with executive action. Um, there will be some things. I mean, he certainly has a vision where he's able to get some bipartisan compromise. But of course, you know, the, the GOP is still dealing with the Trump wing um, and Biden will be dealing with progressives who want him to take a very aggressive approach. Yeah. And so what about that, Jeff? I mean, there are those and I'm one of them who remember and I've interviewed both Tom Daschle and Trent Lott together about their working relationship where they were, they were able to get things done. But there are there are others who say those days are come and gone and ain't never going to happen again. What are your reporters telling you from the Hill? Yeah, I mean, speaking of, of people having drinks together, that was that was <laughs> a different era. That was 20 years ago. It, it, it seems like a like a lifetime where it was a more collegial atmosphere. It was it was much less partisan. Uh, you didn't have the siloing of the media uh, on on either side. Uh, in terms of this power sharing agreement. It's really all about the filibuster, isn't it? I don't think there was ever any question that Democrats were going to head to committees, just like back in, in 2001. If you have 50 votes plus the tiebreaker, you're going to head to committees. Mm -hmm. the, question, the question was always over the filibuster. And Cinema and Manchin essentially made that moot by saying they were never going to vote to do away with it. Uh, now, they could always revisit those rules again, like the Democrats did under Harry Reid with the legislative filibuster in uh, 2013, I believe. They had a, a similar no filibuster agreement at the beginning of the Congress and then went back and changed it uh, when they felt that that Republicans were getting too aggressive with the filibuster on, on judicial nominees. Uh, but interestingly, who was one of only the three Democrats that voted against his own party to preserve the filibuster? Joe Manchin. Uh, so I doubt that that Manchin is going to vote against his own party uh, mm -hmm. in, in that instance. And he's going to vote uh, with McConnell in this instance. 
Uh, and Sabrina, Joe Biden is not helping the effort to overturn the filibuster. And in fact, just the opposite, right? Isn't that, um, it, it, it isn't, it, doesn't that make it harder to get rid of the filibuster if the president uh, is not in, in support of it? Right. This is uh, something that President Biden has not yet himself embraced. In fact, he's talked about the, the opposite, need to right. uphold, exactly, to uphold tradition. Um, he does not want to do away with the filibuster. He still made it a priority to try and work with Republicans on legislation. And look, you know, I was at the briefing yesterday, the White House briefing on Thursday, and asked if uh, President Biden would maybe accept a or entertain a smaller COVID relief package, for example, if mm -hmm. it meant getting a deal with Republicans. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki didn't rule it out. Uh, she said they're not going to do it piecemeal. They're not going to split it into two, as some reports have suggested. But she said it's she said that there's room for negotiation. And so I think that Biden, because of the 36 years he spent in the Senate and because he really was the Obama administration's uh, liaison to Capitol Hill, he was the guy they dispatched whenever they needed to reach some kind of deal. Um, that really is, I think, what has informed his view toward legislating and governing. Um, I, I think it'll be interesting to see, though, uh, how much of that commitment he's made gets tested when, if and when Republicans obstruct a lot of his agenda. Um, right now, they're already talking about possibly Democrats possibly using uh, reconciliation to pass a COVID-19 bill. Essentially, it would allow them to, of course, do pass a bill with a simple majority vote. But there's going to be a lot of Biden's agenda that he's not going to be able to do through reconciliation, which is a budgetary process. There's going to be a lot of priorities that on immigration, on racial justice, on environment, um, that he would need 60 votes. He would need to clear a 60 vote threshold in the Senate. He'd need support from Republicans. And so if, if assuming Democrats maintain their hold on both majorities in Congress, it will be interesting to see how long Biden remains committed to preserving the filibuster if a lot of his agenda, like that of President Obama, is stalled in Congress because of Republicans. And Hunter, of all the things that we've talked about and, and where Biden is moving on many different fronts, isn't COVID-19 the one and most important and most urgent of all? And if so, how do you rate um, in this first week, only the first week, uh, the Biden administration has moved on addressing the pandemic? Well, in short, I think it's too early to tell. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, Jen Psaki, um, at the White House briefing, I think two days ago, had some pretty interesting comments where, you know, she said, guys, it's only been six days, guys, it's only been six days. And, and then at one yeah. point, she said, at some point, I'm going to stop saying that. But for now, it's only <laughs> been six days. And I think that's really the question, you know, at what point do, does both the administration and the public stop saying it's it's early? And at what point are, is Biden really owning the COVID response? And to that end, um, you know, I, I rattled off a bunch of stuff that kind of seems like, you know, silly, fluffy, you know, scandals of yore that we're seeing. Um, but the one thing that I think is really, you know, a potentially problem area for the Biden administration right now is this vaccine rollout. It is still going very, very slowly. Mm -hmm. He initially had this um, 
hundred million dollar uh, hundred million dose promise um, that you know was initially seen as quite bold, but then people realized it was pretty in line with um, what was happening and what was being mm -hmm. promised in the Trump administration. Um, Biden was taking some flack from that, and then all of a sudden this week he basically promised that um, we're going to get to three hundred million doses, which is you know almost all of the country um, in the next couple of months uh, by this summer, I believe. And, you know, that's a pretty audacious promise. Um, I'm curious what made them so optimistic about that. I've talked to a lot of people, including Biden sources, who, you know, that raised their eyebrows. They're kind of wondering if he might have gotten over his skis there. The thinking that I've heard is that um, that kind of promise could only be feasible if the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, um, which only takes one dose in contrast mm -hmm. to the two we're seeing from Pfizer and Moderna, um, gets approved soon. And I know people, I mean, I talked to people involved in Biden's COVID team, Dr. Zeke Emanuel, um, in December, um, and they were optimistic about approval for Johnson & Johnson, but this is coming right as data is coming out showing that that appears to be far less effective than the two-dose vaccines. It's 66%. Um, it is effective at sort of mitigating the deadliest effects of corona, um, of COVID-19, but, um, you know, it, it doesn't seem to be um, as good of immunity as you get from the two-dose varieties. Now, now, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, you know, was just saying on Twitter this morning, hey, these numbers are actually really good. Coronavirus is mutating. These variants are getting into the trials. This is very impressive and effective. But, you know, I, I think you put your finger on exactly what the money question is going forward. Can Joe Biden pull off this now audacious 300 million promise? And, you know, is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine going to be good enough to help get him there? And okay. Bill, yeah, Bill yeah, if I yeah. could interject sure. on that, I'm sorry. I, I saw this this week that uh, Europe, the EU had hoped to vaccinate 67 million people per month. In their first month of rollout, they managed to vaccinate they managed to vaccinate nine million in their first roll in their first month of rollout. So this is really hard, uh, regardless of how the Biden administration was or was not set up well by the Trump administration. This is hard to do, and voters are going to get frustrated by the pace of this. Um, it's something the administration is going to have to manage on, on a messaging front. Or, or, and if they don't, they, they ignore that at their peril. Right. Uh, there's something else going on, which is uh, looming over all of this, the possibility, if not the certainty, of a Senate trial to convict Donald Trump on incitement of insurrection. I can't believe it. 22 minutes in, we haven't even talked about that yet. But we will uh, with our panel, Hunter Walker, Sabrina Siddiqui, and Jeff Dufer, after a quick break here on The Roundtable. And today's Roundtable brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A, a real powerhouse among America's labor unions. Over half a million strong uh, active in the energy field, both building the uh, old-fashioned pipelines, if you will, and the new technology of the future solar panels and uh, wind turbines. Active in the construction field, they're rebuilding our roads, bridges, schools, office buildings and infrastructure, and uh, public employees, also members of the labor's union, particularly in um, um, among healthcare workers, all under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan. We salute the laborers and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at liuna, L-I-U-N-A, dot org. 
Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod, uh, Hunter Walker, White House correspondent for Yahoo News, Sabrina Siddiqui, also White House correspondent, new on the job with the Wall Street Journal, and Jeff Dufer, editor-in-chief of the National Journal. Um, so uh, interesting, uh, this vote this week on whether or not, uh, not whether Donald Trump should be convicted, but whether or not they should even hold a trial Forty-five out of 50 Republicans said, we don't even want to hear the evidence. We don't think there should be a trial. It's unconstitutional or it's just a Democratic plot to, to, to uh, pick on a man who's no longer uh, in office. Uh, who starts here? Hunter, uh, what does this mean for the likelihood of a trial and the likely outcome? Um you know, I mean, I, I think Republicans are, uh, other than, you know, some of the outliers that we've seen, not 100 percent on board with this. Um, you know, there is, I think, a lot of commitment in certain segments of the Democratic Party, um, you know, for getting this done. Um, you've actually seen, you know, the progressive wing and the squad um, sort of take a lead on drafting impeachment um, articles. Uh, Ilhan Omar was actually writing them up from the secure location as the Capitol attack was happening. But, you know, leadership has has gotten behind this. Nancy Pelosi ultimately went with um, articles that were drafted up by uh, J.B. Raskin, David Cicilline, and, and another group of more mainline Democrats. So I think you see some unity on that front. Biden has said um, that, you know, um, Trump has to be tried. And I think you know, that was a subtle shift, but it's the biggest and most consequential one here, because as I was following this in the beginning, you know, a lot of the concern from Democrats, um, particularly in the more centrist mainstream wing, was that impeachment would somehow disrupt Biden um, or disrupt his first hundred days. And, you know, the impression I had from them was that if he was behind it, um, it was all systems go. And initially, you know, Biden said, I'm going to leave this to Congress. Mm -hmm. um, but in modifying that slightly um, to say, you know, he has to be tried, it is still deferring to Congress, but it's really signaling, um, I think, to the Democratic caucus, you know, that he wants them to go through with this. Um, so I think you are going to see the kicking and screaming from the Republicans, who, by the way, you know, if we watch uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, the GOP House mm -hmm. Majority Leader's pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago, they're very wary of Trump 
they need him for the midterms, and he was very upset by the few who criticized him um, after the attack. Um, so they're dealing with that, but the Democrats do seem intent on moving forward. Well, the Republicans certainly had 45 votes, including Mitch McConnell, not to proceed with the trial, but there are others, um, notably Mitt Romney, who said, in effect, um, it, hey, if unleashing a mob to storm the U.S. Capitol and make us all flee for our lives is not uh, worthy of impeachment, what the hell is? Here's Mitt Romney this week, uh, a speech in Chicago, sort of addressing his fellow Republicans. And, and the people largely on my side who are saying, look, an impeachment trial is going to inflame passions more. I say, first of all, have you gone out publicly and said that there was not widespread voter fraud and that, that Joe Biden is a legitimate president of the United States. If you've said that, then I'm happy to listen to you talk about other things that might inflame uh, anger and divisiveness. But if you haven't said that, that's really what's at the source of the anger right now. Uh, yeah. So, Sabrina, he's saying that these, all the rest of the Republicans are uh, also partly responsible. Right. And you've had, uh, I think, Mitt Romney for some time now really saying that the trial is about holding president, former President Trump accountable, but also that it's needed for a, a truth and justice as well and to really get to the to really address what was at the heart of the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. And he's been pretty clear in also uh, placing blame on Republicans in Congress who, uh, at a minimum, backed uh, Trump's unfounded claims of voter fraud in the election, if not, of course, uh, bolstered those claims on their own. And so, you know, I think having said that, we remember that Senator Romney was the only Republican who voted to convict uh, Trump in his first impeachment trial. Right. So, you know, I think that he is still part of a minority. You know, uh, there are a handful of senators, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, uh, Pat Toomey, who were also uh, among those who f voted against the motion that said that the impeachment trial was unconstitutional. But, um, you know, I, I'm struck still by how after the Capitol was under siege and lawmakers and their staff, members of media, all had their lives threatened. And, uh, you know, former President Trump was effectively, for a long time, did not urge this, his supporters to go home. In fact, initially, he just asked them to be peaceful when they were clearly engaging in acts of violence. And it took a few tries to get him to tell them to stand down and go home, that uh, most Republicans are still very much intent on backing the pres the former president here. I think it just shows you the kind of grip he continues to hold over the Republican Party and will for the foreseeable future. Um, and I think just you know one last thing I'll say about this is, um, you know, with, when it comes to Republicans and the, you know, the approach that they've taken, you saw like a brief change after the attack mm -hmm. where some of them seemed ready to uh, mm -hmm. move away from Trump. But it, it, it's pretty remarkable how quickly they've snapped, black, they've snapped back into place. And, you know, I, yes, to some extent, it's because they're hearing from, their, from the base, from the Republican base, which is very much still um, behind Trump and in lockstep with Trump. But if they do want to try and reclaim the party, 
And now that Trump is out of office, if they do want to turn the corner, this seems to be the most obvious test to do so. Well, yeah, Jeff, what if this isn't the test, what is what will Republicans this this these Republicans ever break from Trump? Uh, not in any sort of, of numbers. They, they will not have a critical mass to convict, certainly. Uh, there are not 33 GOP senators who, who are going to mm-hmm. vote for this. They've already made up their mind. Now, in terms of the five who who voted with the Democrats on the motion, I think there is some wiggle room. Some Democrats have, I'm sorry, some Republicans have backtracked a little bit, uh, namely Rob Portman, uh, mm-hmm. who said, listen, the vote was, wasn't to say that the whole thing is unconstitutional. It was just a vote to keep debating the constitutionality of it rather than tabling it. So he's, he's splitting this parliamentary hair, really. Um, but he did open the door that himself and maybe a handful of others could still vote to convict, even though they voted uh, against this motion. I don't think they're going to get anywhere near 67. I think the more interesting question right now is if they move forward on a censure or maybe this uh, this hail mary of a Fourteenth Amendment play, uh, mm-hmm. where if 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 an officer of the federal government has engaged in some sort of insurrection, this goes back to the Civil War, you can bar them from future office, uh, and the barrier is a little bit lower as, as far as uh, as far as the mechanism goes than an impeachment and removal. So you could see a move on that, but if you go through a whole trial and that fails. Is there going to be an appetite in both houses of Congress to then debate uh, a censure and a 14th Amendment play again and take up more floor time on this? I'm not sure. Well, I think we can see the Senate trial and maybe have to look at this this discussion, particularly among Republicans about the Senate trial, uh, as reflective of the disarray, if you will, or, um, um, well, chaos in the Republican Party today. I noticed this morning the lead headline on CNN is GOP meltdown. Uh, David, Paul Krugman's column in the New York Times this morning, the headline is, the GOP is in a doom loop of bizarro. Um, Where you've got yesterday Kevin McCarthy down in Florida schmoozing and trying to make up with Donald Trump, Uh, Congressman Matt Gates out in Wyoming, uh, holding a rally, uh, taking on Liz Cheney because she voted uh, to impeach, where you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene, video coming out, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a member of Congress from Georgia, actually talking a couple of years ago about the answer is to put a bullet in the head of Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Nancy Pelosi herself spoke to this um, troubling, (laughs) to say the least, kind of trend in the re- inside the Republican Party uh, yesterday at her news conference. What I'm concerned about is the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives, who is willing to overlook, ignore those statements, assigning her to the Education Committee when she has mocked the killing of little children at Sandy Hook Elementary School, when she has mocked the killing of teenagers at the Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School. What could they be thinking or thinking too generous a word for what they might be doing? And I'm sure she's talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene. So, so Hunter, what about this civil war inside the Republican Party? I mean, it's real to one extent, right? Like there are, 
you know, as we've breaking as we're breaking down the dynamics of how they might vote on um, an impeachment trial, you know, there are a handful of Republicans who, um, you know, have spoken out against um, some of the wilder things that um, we've seen in the final throes of the Trump era, whether it's um, false allegations of voter fraud or, or QAnon, of which Green is a big proponent, right. um, and then, of course, um, the, the violent attack at the Capitol. But, you know, I think all of this stuff in American politics ends up being a bit asymmetric. Um you know, uh, Jonathan Chait at uh, New York Mag is getting widely roasted for a column where he sort of equated um, Marjorie Taylor Greene to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, and the point he made, which is, I guess, at least somewhat valid, is that both are, you know, the extreme ends of their party. But in the extreme end of the Democratic Party, you get someone who, you know, has a policy vision um, that some people might think yeah. is radical. Uh, at the extreme end of the GOP, you get Marjorie, who is... Um, you know, saying there are Jewish space lasers causing wildfires effectively, right? And and I think that— Or suggesting know, assassinating the speaker and the president of the United States. Right? Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, the GOP has opened a Pandora's box of being willing to cater to an element of a base that, that wants this— it's really hard to shut that. It's not going to happen that easily. And I think the comments from Romney that you highlighted earlier, sort of if you're not going to impeach someone for inciting a riot and essentially a terrorist attack, what are you going to do? Um, you know, those just very squarely illustrate the existential question at the middle of the GOP right now. Like, like you know, they're essentially putting on their suits and going out every day and pretending everything is normal while they've really nurtured an extremist fringe from within. And and I don't think they fix that so easily. And I think their willingness to do that shows that their urgency, you know, we're approaching this question of whether they will expel her or, or deal with these things almost in a normal political world, but this is so far away from that that I don't think we should necessarily expect them to act normally or cave to normal pressures. Well, in fact, Jeff, um, Kevin McCarthy's response is, uh, I'm going to have a conversation, right? We're going to have a, yeah, we're just asking conversation. questions. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're going to have conversations and we're just asking questions. Um, the, the, what's astounding to me is how much the Tip O'Neill's axiom that all politics is local. He must have said that in what the 1970s. It, it may as well have been the 1870s. <laughs> no politics is local anymore. It's all national. Matt Gates, who is essentially a, a backbencher from Florida, travels to Wyoming yesterday yeah. to rail against Liz Cheney, a member of his own leadership. It it makes no sense. Um, I'll, I'll check a quote that my, that my colleague Josh Krausar got in his column yesterday. Uh, it's a quote that he got from Corey Bliss, who was a longtime advisor to Portman, and it, it, it got some attention. The quote is, if you want to spend all your time going on Fox and being an asshole, there's never been a better time to serve. But if you want to spend all your time being thoughtful and getting shit done, there's never been a worse time to serve. And, and I think that encapsulates it. Um, and this kind of... This kind of civil war, this schism in the GOP is now coloring everything politically. I mean, you're going to see it play out in the next two years almost everywhere. The future of Trumpism versus the establishment GOP. Um, 
North Carolina, is Lara Trump going to run? Georgia, is Doug Collins going to run for Senate? Uh, Wisconsin, will Ron Johnson run for re-election? You have Arizona with Kelly Ward's own version of Stop the Steal going on. Uh, Pennsylvania and Pat, with, uh, mm-hmm. with Pat Toomey's retirement. In every one of these states, uh, the enduring appeal of, of MAGAism is going to be the big test, either in the primary contest or in the general election contest. It's, it's not going to go away, at least for another election cycle or two. Uh, so, Sabrina, I'll give you the last word here before we move to our favorite stories. It, 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 should someone maybe stand up and give a reality check to these Republicans that, okay, they stuck with Donald Trump all the way through, all the way through to even denying uh, the results of the election? And what did they get? Reality. They lost the White House. They lost the House. They lost the Senate. Well, the question is, who who's going to give that reality check to them? Um, <laughs> I think they've made the calculation that because Trump still has such strong support from Republican primary voters that they need to continue and entertain Trumpism. And I think it's just become an integral part of the party. I'm not sure there even is a civil war anymore. I think that Trumpism is very much still at the core, has now at the core of the party in many ways. And I'm, it's, it's becoming increasingly unclear, um, it, or I would say I'm not unclear. In fact, if anything, it's becoming increasingly clear that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene aren't really on the fringe anymore. They, they're now in the mainstream of the party. And, you know, the, look at the fact that someone like Rob Portman is retiring and he joins a long list of more uh, orthodox Republicans like Jeff Flake, Bob Corker, and others before him who who decided there wasn't really a place, even if Portman didn't necessarily say so in his statement on his retirement. And I think this, the undercurrent to all of this is that there's not a place for the Portmans um, of the world in, in this current Republican Party. And I think uh, it will take a couple of election cycles to do away with uh, Trumpism, if, if that's what they intend to do, a lot of the people who are lining up and angling for 2024, like Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio, and Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, uh, they're very much trying to fashion themselves uh, as as the next Trump in waiting. So I, you know, I, I think I don't think this is going anywhere um, for the time being. But yeah, I, I really do think people underestimate how much this is no longer the fringe. It's really more part of the GOP mainstream. And that's something that they're going to yeah. have to reckon with for at least uh, another election or, or two to come. Well, it certainly looks that way. And it looks like maybe the only victim of this whole civil war may be Liz Cheney herself um, for having the guts to stand up and vote for impeachment uh, as part of the leadership. All right. We always say that um, with everything we're doing on all that we're covering. There's maybe one story that makes you stop and think and laugh or um, scratch your head or whatever, your favorite story of the week, what caught your attention. Um, Hey, Jeff, you want to start us off? I'd love to. And this is low-hanging fruit, but I couldn't. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Melania Trump, on her way to Florida, (laughs) announces with staff in tow, with three staffers with her, is going to continue her Be Best initiative. And how could you blame her, given the astounding success it's achieved so far? Why wouldn't she? I think the only thing you can say, perhaps, in in defense of this move, is that it will be perhaps less hypocritical and ironic now that her husband is deprived of Twitter and is unable to call anyone a pathetic loser anymore. 
<laughs> right. Perhaps no, it holds water a little bit better. No more bullying on Twitter, right? No. <laughs> that's, that, that's, it's a new era. But the only way we got rid of the bullying on Twitter was when Twitter banned him for life. Right. right. So, <laughs> I admit that. That's that's very very funny. I wonder how many. I wonder how much of our tax uh, tax dollars are going to support be best. Oh my, uh, Sabrina. Oh no, Sabrina. I want to save your animal story for last. So Hunter, <laughs> Hunter, go ahead. <laughs> so you know, I I, I just I, I hadn't seen that Jeff, but I love that story, and I have to say that's great. I, I pulled up the best headline about Be Best, which was written on January 15th, five days before Biden took office. And, and it, this is from Jezebel's Megan Reynolds. And she said, Be Best is finished after attaining its goal of informing every American to be best. Um, <laughs> and I think that, that really captured it because I, 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 I'll tell you this. I covered the Trump White House the whole time, and I, I have no idea what the Be Best initiative did. Nobody than, does. Than, yeah, you know, tell me in a beautiful Slavic accent that I should be my best. Um, but I will continue to be best, and I, I wish the First Lady the best at being best as well. Um, I will be short because I just kept talking about Jeff's story. But, um, you know, I know we were all consumed with the GameStop saga um, at mm, the end of this yes. week. Where the, these Redditors basically pumped up a bunch of sort of – failing traditional retail businesses that had been shorted by hedge funds and through the complex mechanics of hedge funds essentially you know betting against businesses um this had this exponential effect in the the price going up and uh these hedge funds took a massive bath um you know it's people are covering this as great news but of course some of these redditors are going to take a bath as well when this stuff goes back to earth but within right. this there was a bit that i truly loved which is that um melvin capital the main hedge fund that you know really took a hit on GameStop is owned by a protege of Steve Cohen. And why does this matter to me? Well, Steve Cohen is just about the slimiest person in hedge fund history. Um, there's a wonderful article about his old firm, SAC Capital, in The New Yorker that details all – You know, it, it takes work to break the law as a hedge fund because we allow so much, and he, he sure did it. Um, but since then, he's kept a couple – billion dollars and he's also the owner of the new york mets and uh -oh. as a new yorker i despise the mets they are an absolute affront to me personally because new york has the greatest team in all of baseball history the new york yankees and these these fools came around in the 60s they they took a blue dodgers hat and slapped a giants logo on it and have been embarrassing themselves ever since and that continued through this week where their owner steve cohen had to bail out his protege um, to the tune of about $3 billion. He insists it won't impact the Mets' payroll, but in my case, one can only hope. So keep going, Reddit. Oh, man. I'll tell you, never cross a Yankees fan. <laughs> and, and hilariously, the Mets also, um, their old owners prior to Steve Cohen were clients of Bernie Madoff, and the team oh. struggled for years because they lost money on that. So it would really be peak Mets for their ineptitude to continue with another Wall Street scandal. All right. They're still paying Bobby Bonilla, remember? <laughs> yeah, Bobby will be made whole no matter what every year. Okay, Sabrina, take it away. Your favorite story. 
Well, I would say that you were on the nose when you said you have to save my animal story for last. You also predicted it to be about dogs because it always is. And <laughs> you, but you will be surprised it is not about Major and Champ, the Biden oh. dogs moving into the White House, which oh. they did on yes. Sunday. Yes. Um, but, and we're very happy to have dogs back in the White House. But you know, I've been following the coronavirus detection dogs. Oh, right. Yeah. I've been bringing updates ever since there was the first study that dogs might be able to sniff out coronavirus. I've been bringing those updates to Bill's show. So it's only, um, I think, natural that I have to report that the Miami Heat has unleashed the coronavirus dogs. And when the American Airlines Arena in Miami reopened on Thursday, Mm -hmm. uh, they had dogs that they build as coronavirus detection dogs that were there to screen guests and employees as they arrived to the facility. And it's the first time that the NBA put these coronavirus canines to, to, to use in screening the public. Now, the science is still a little unclear on whether dogs can actually detect coronavirus in people. And there have been some studies suggesting that they can, but I'm happy that they're out there. You know I love dogs, and you know I'm all for dogs being the saviors when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. So Good for you. You know, when I saw that story, Sabrina, I did think of you. I honestly did. So <laughs> I'm glad. I was on this story when it first emerged. Yes, you were the first It's a beat one. that no one else is interested in, so I'm happy to own it. Would you say you, you were sniffing it out and then you just, oh, oh, no. just wouldn't let go? <laughs> okay. We're in pursuit of the facts. <laughs> oh God! Oh, let me wrap up with my favorite story of the week, and it is, I think, nothing short of revolutionary, and that's the announcement by General Motors (GM) that they are not going to produce any petroleum-based vehicles. No more combustion engines. No more fossil fuel cars or trucks after the year 2035. I mean, it is revolutionary. And what I think is remarkable about this is they're doing it not because Congress made them, not because the president signed an executive order making them do it. They're doing it because that's what the market they know, the market demands. That's what people want, uh, fossil-free cars, fossil-fuel-free cars. Um, And uh, it sort of shows that... (laughs) Maybe the Green New Deal wasn't bold enough that uh, the market is determining that we're going into a um, a renewable energy future and GM is leading the way. Uh, And to think that um, the Republicans in Congress are still against raising the fuel efficiency standards to 35 miles an hour and gm is just making them look like fools so good for gm good for america good for all of you for joining us and good for our panelists sabrina siddiqui thank you so much hunter walker jeff dufer thank you thank you all for listening to today's uh, podcast today's roundtable uh we want to tell you that our next podcast the first one next week We're going to look at the right wing, take a good deep dive into the right wing extremist groups like Proud Boys and Oath Keepers we hear so much about today with the leadership of the Southern Poverty Law Center. So check in for that. Meanwhile, stay safe, wear your mask, practice your social distancing, take good care of yourselves and come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.